Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Subi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, did you notice that our former president, Donald Trump, a person that this podcast has been treating correctly like a criminal since it began, has actually been indicted like a bunch of times? I have, I have managed to notice that, uh, as I think almost everyone in America has, and I'm officially banning the podcast from making jokes about the number of indictments since those jokes have all already been made. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll find some new ground here. But it is kind of wild that we haven't done an episode on the indictments yet. I mean, a story like that is pretty much in our DNA as a show. Very much. Very much so. I mean, look, a lot of times we'll jump in on breaking news. But, you know, with a story like this that is being covered wall to wall, first of all, Trump gets way too much coverage for it. Um, but I just sometimes think it's better for us to wait, let the dust settle and try to figure out what we have to say that's different than what you might hear on CNN or reading the New York Times. And we do have something and someone to talk about that we do think is original to our style, and that's Fonnie Willis, the Georgia prosecutor who has filed a RICO case against Trump and 18 co-defendants for their illegal attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. But we're not just going to talk about Fonnie Willis and her case. We also want to consider her literary and historical antecedents. Here's a black woman in a position of power challenging what is, in essence, the country's white establishment. How often has that happened? Quite frequently, by the way. Um, What kind of history and narratives do we have about figures like this? And to talk about all that, we're joined once more by Maurice Carlos Ruffin, a return guest. Maurice is the author of the forthcoming historical novel, The American Daughters, which will be published in 2024 by One World Random House. He's the recipient of the 2023 Louisiana Writer Award and the Black Rock Senegal Residency. His recent story collection, The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, was a New York Times editor's choice, a finalist for the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence, and longlisted for the Story Prize. And his first book, We Cast a Shadow, which we discussed on an earlier episode of this show, was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and the Penn America Open Book Prize. That novel was also a New York Times editor's choice. Maurice, welcome back. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be a repeat guest here on Fiction Nonfiction. And you're flying in from Senegal, which is always cool, but thanks for jet lagging with us a little bit. Um... I want to begin by talking a little bit about who Fonnie Willis is and what experiences shaped her before she filed this historic case against Donald Trump. Maybe even before she became the Fulton County DA. I mean, before I started researching the show, the only thing that I knew that her father was in the Black Panthers and that she graduated from Howard University in 1993, went to law school at Emory. But not a lot more than that. I mean, you're a lawyer. You're based in Louisiana. Were you aware of Fonnie Willis before this case? And if so, what kind of reputation did she have in the legal community? I wasn't aware of her specifically, but I can tell you that I'm very familiar with her type. Uh, The strong black woman who makes it a point to be at the vanguard of protecting people's rights within the community. Reminds me of my grandmother, my mother, uh, women district attorneys in Louisiana and in New Orleans. And uh, watching her work, I just see a lot of uh, similarities to people I've observed in the past as a lawyer. So in 2001, Willis joined the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. And back then it was led by Paul Howard, who was the first black district attorney in the state of Georgia. 
And his office worked with Georgia's former Republican Governor Nathan Deal on bipartisan efforts to reform sentencing, juvenile justice, and cash bail. So according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, prison admissions of black inmates dropped to historic lows under Nathan Deal. It seems almost inconceivable today that a Republican governor and a black district attorney would make common cause over sentencing reform. But how common were these kinds of efforts in the pre-Trump era? You know, they were not as common as they should have been. But I think what's happened in recent years is that uh, fiscal conservatives have gotten into a place where they realize that they would actually go broke as a state or as a municipality if they kept locking up large parts of their community. And so to see Ms. Willis and, and people like that governor get together, it's not as surprising as one would think. Um, it doesn't mean that all the problems are fixed, but it, it's one of those things that makes me smile that we uh, have seen more of that kind of activity in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to ask about that or bring that into the discussion because, of course, you know, Fonnie Willis is now being caricatured by Donald Trump and his allies as this far left, you know, uh, radical left prosecutor who, uh, quote, to quote Trump, is presiding over one of the most crime ridden and corrupt places in the United States of America. Whereas 10 years ago, she's working with a Republican governor to do sentencing reform, right? I mean, this is there's a deep insanity about the way that she is being discussed, you know. I also think she's not very radically left. I mean, she also is pretty tough on crime, if you use an old Republican phrase. She began her presentation to the Fulton County Board of Commissioners after she replaced Howard by saying, none of your constituents are safe. She's prosecuted gang members. She's prosecuted public school teachers, two groups that MAGA Republicans love to hate. So how would you characterize her politics? You know, I think she's the best kind of prosecutor, somebody who sets certain priorities and makes it a point to go after those priorities. You know, it, it seems to me like she has decided corruption in politics is really a big deal that should be addressed. And I personally agree with huh. that. <laughs> I wonder where she got that idea. <laughs> and of course, the attacks on her character. I mean, those are the kind of things that politicians have been doing since time immemorial. Um, I watched a documentary recently called The Edge of Democracy um, uh, about what happened uh, in a South American country where they were prosecuting their president and then the uh, former president. And you just see these kind of attacks all the time. I think that she is somebody who understands that what's being said about her is just a, a part of how the game is played. And she's, I think, doing a good job of resisting those attacks. It's interesting. I was just reminded of when I was reading about the attacks on her, I was reminded of, I mean, some of the rhetoric about Kamala Harris. Um, also a prosecutor at one point and, and kind of, you know, as you say, someone who, um, put herself at the vanguard of the establishment, um, and about whom there is a lot of there is a lot of critique. I mean, it's an it's an interesting position to pursue. Um, like, if you're interested in addressing injustice and institutional injustice, prosecutor. You know, and it's it's a really difficult question because, you know, I think historically most Americans, well, many Americans had the idea of uh, policing and prosecution as being really important important to maintaining order in society. But then, of course, in more recent years, we have this idea of de-incarceration, of, and of um, the, the prison abolitionist movement. I, I think it's actually an important movement. The tension that those two movements have in opposition is a good thing. Um, and people debate it all the time. I mean, you know, is it good to have you know, police on every corner? Is it good to have prosecutors who go after uh, people who are just walking down the street? Um, I think how it's applied is really important, and she certainly has got some criticism on that. But I do think that for the most part, she's gotten it right. I think that's really important. And, and of course, I should also say that, 
you know, it's no surprise that people uh, attack women, and particularly women from marginalized communities, in a very specific way. The things they say about her, they probably would never say about, you know, a cishet white male, for example. So I see some of that as well. For sure. I mean, I'm also reminded, of course, of how people have spoken about Stacey Abrams, who, of course, is coming also a lawyer, but coming from like a very different position and becoming well known for um, contesting sort of how the election for governor was run in Georgia. But I I like sort of also like rhetorically very similar attacks, actually. Yeah, they're not very creative, which I kind of laugh at when I see it. I mean, it's just I, the frust. It's the frustrating to me because not frustrating. It's I guess it's just how life works. But you know, she really legitimately seems like a person who's like, okay, I I take the law very seriously. The law is a form of protection uh, when used properly for marginalized groups, right? And it's all and and so therefore I. But because I take it seriously, I'm going to apply it equally to everyone. I mean, I think she really believes in that idea. Um, and, and yet that is the the one thing that Trump doesn't want people to do. This real, the law really needs to not be applied equally. That is the one thing that you're going to get criticism for from the, the radical right now. I think that's true. And I think it's a conundrum. I think it's very difficult when you're dealing with politics because people are often willing to defend any behavior as long as they're, it's their person doing it. And I think in the current situation, it takes somebody like Ms. Willis who is going to call balls and strikes like a, you know, umpire in baseball, and to sort of get the evidence, get the witnesses, and give us a, a reasonable accounting of what actually happened. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So, Maurice, one of the reasons we invited you on was because your forthcoming novel, The American Daughters, tells the story of a young woman named Adi, Adi, which is it? Adi. Adi. And she's enslaved to a businessman in New Orleans, and she joins a clandestine society of women who work to undermine the Confederacy. I was immediately wanting to read this. Um, So to me, it seems like this novel is connecting to a history of resistance among black women to white supremacist power structures. And I wonder if you could read a section of the book and and talk a little bit about that. Sure, Um, I'd love to. Um, So the book is called American Daughters. And um, I think what I'll do, because this is actually one of the first places I've had the opportunity to to read any of it, is that I'm actually gonna read a bit of the prologue. And uh, just so you know, the, the prologue is set in a distant future where some researchers are trying to understand uh, what Adi and her cohort experienced in New Orleans back in the 1850s. And they found some files that are, are apparently uh, created by her and one of her, de- one of her descendants. So first I'll read a very short passage um, written by Adi herself, and then a passage written by, I think, her, her great-great-grandson. Uh, Prologue. Researchers file 2169, translated fragment of historical document known as Adi, or the confession of a freed woman. In grasping my pen and putting my hand to page, I felt as though I existed for the first time. I was the property of no one save myself. Therefore, I could freely give of myself to those I loved, no? As my mother promised, I had once and for all time found a place for myself in the world, a place of complete freedom the freedom of birds, flower petals, and the stars above. Researchers filed 2152, conversation transcript, read the American Daughters. 
See, people kept asking me if Adi's story was a true story. I never lied now. I admitted the work I did to fill in the gaps and complete that narrative. But this time, the book, by this time that book had been reprinted twice, you understand? I played down my involvement because I never wanted to make that hoopla about me. You see? It was her story. You feel me? That couldn't last. I see that now. Try as I might to stay out the way, I was involved in ways I didn't understand. See, they were trying to tell me the story was just fiction from back in the day. But I knew in my heart Adi was real. Have you read Confession? Yes, I'm talking about Adi's diary. No? Well, that's your loss. You ever do read it, you'll see she practically glows from the page. Next thing I know, someone showed up saying they had some of her hair. They wanted to test mine. I let them. It was a match. Now ain't that something? That changed everything. Everything. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm. It's cool. I'm. You know. I, I'm. I. I've never heard this book. I didn't. Haven't read it yet. It's not out. So uh, it's. It's not. It's. It's wonderful to hear the beginning of a of a new book. Yours taught. You have researchers, obviously, there in in the in the book. But what kind of research did you do for the novel? And can you talk about the historical parallels for Adi and the and the women uh, that she joins up with? Yeah, this book really is the culmination of a lifetime of research. Um, it comes from the stories told to me by ancestors, including my, my grandmother and mother and other people in my family, but also you know, going down to the French Quarter in New Orleans to a place called the Williams Research Center and going through stacks and stacks of uh, old books and newspaper clippings and microfiche and that sort of thing. And then, you know, uh, doing 23 and, and Me Ancestry and finding documents from old state legislatures in places like Virginia and Alabama. And, you know, I, I began to basically compile for myself um, a compendium of, of activities by black folks, but especially black women across the South and across the country. Things that people are vaguely aware of if you like do the research, but are rarely spoken about. And it was those activities by black women, you know, over the course of hundreds of years that really inspired me to put this book together. I'm just always, um, I mean, it was a beautiful excerpt of the prologue and the section that you read reminded me a little bit of in The Handmaid's Tale, there's these like sort of scraps of evidence and, you know, this this academic conference of people gathering together to assess. Um, and I mean, it's a feminist project, essentially, like from the get go. And, you know, you're a, you're and you're a male writer taking this on, which is great. I feel like this is one of the questions kind of of our time. And anyway, so I just want to say that I really I really appreciate that. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about like there's kind of right right in that prologue, this question of belief. Like I'm reminded of Phyllis Wheatley, who was tested like, right, could she really write? There's <laughs> no way she could possibly have been the author of that. Right. And like black women is the authors of their own destinies. That's so powerful. And yet from the second that they begin to tell the story, there is this note of disbelief. Yeah. And, you know, absolutely. In my mind, this is a feminist project. And The Handmaid's Tale is for me personally uh, a very important book. And I remember reading that book as a young person and getting to the end of it and seeing that, that sort of epilogue at the researchers' conference set in the distant future. And it, it always stuck with me. And so I've, I've wanted to actually try that myself. And as a, you know, as a creative person, you can do whatever you want to. You can take what, what you want to from the past and put in your own work. And, and you know, beyond that, I think it's, it's really important for us to acknowledge the work of so many women who were disregarded, whether they were in the arts, whether they were activists, um, 
you know, I've had uh, people I've worked with in the past that sort of led me along this path. I mean, one basic example is I did, I, I was a book reviewer for the uh, Virginia Quarterly Review for a, a few years. And uh, the editor over there, she had me reviewing these books that um, I think were sort of below the radar. And so one of the books, for example, was about unsung black women uh, heroes of the civil rights movement. And I had a chance to read a book about nine women from the 1950s who, you know, some were more ubiquitous than others. Um, but even in my hometown, uh, Leah Chase, the great restaurateur, who is a local hero who I had met in person, the things I learned about her in that book and how she never really wanted to get acclaim for herself. And yet as a restaurateur, she literally fed people like Dr. King when they came to New Orleans and helped them, you know, have the energy to go out there and give their, uh, you know, their speeches and, and, and do their protests and sit-ins. So those sort of things really inspired me in this project. Don't you think Fonnie Willis feels that history that you're talking about, you know, when she goes into work? I mean, you know, the DA's office in Fulton County was also the same DA's office that used to uphold Jim Crow laws, you know? I mean, she, she is in the seat of power that used to be used to oppress people like her. And I'm sure that she must feel that weight of history when she's in off hours. You know, in my experience, I think it's the most uh, natural thing in the world for black women to be the kind of people who are the first to stand up for, for rights. I mean, it's a reason why in so many recent elections, you know, we're actually going back a very long way, you may have like a very conservative presidential candidate and a very liberal one, and black women tend to vote 95-ish percent every single time for the candidate who's for freedom of you know, human rights and social rights. And you know, it's not for nothing that um, you know, following the activity of the civil rights activists in the 50s, all of the world, you saw people responding to that. You know, in Africa, for example, um, throughout the late 50s and early 60s, you had so many countries fighting for their independence and gaining it one by one by one. So these things are all connected. And I think that for somebody like Ms. Willis, you know, she was raised, raised in that tradition, and it's totally normal for her to do that without even having to you know, think very much about it. She's going to do it. I mean, we should mention, I want to mention, like Ida B. Wells, Sojourner Truth, Angela Davis. These are all, you know, in that sort of tradition of resistance in American life. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I, those uh, women are on my mind constantly. Sojourner Truth, uh, Harriet Tubman, you know, Ida B. Wells, for example. I mean, she's somebody, you know, she was the first person to say, I'm going to track all these lynchings. I need to have some actual evidence of what's been happening here in this country because the New York Times is not writing about it. You know, we're not seeing yeah. you know, so-called scholars writing about these things. And so at great risk to her personal safety, she made it a point to go from place to place collecting these stories of people's loved ones who had been killed by racist hate mongers, even to the point where she was, you know, being chased by these men who wanted to shut her up. And eventually, of course, she has to move to Chicago from the South, but not before she made a significant impact on the history of our country. I was thinking... Um as we prepared for this episode about Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, who uses her Twitter handle is actually Ida Baywells. And I think when the indictments <laughs> were coming out, she tweeted, once again, it is black people who are the greatest agents of democracy the United States has ever seen. And I was like, yep. Yeah, you'll find uh, no objection from me on that point. <laughs> Three of the four prosecutors who are going after who have decided to file charges against Trump are black. Yeah, and, and you know, and I will, I will say that, you know, our country has always had challenges based on um, our history involving the treatment of black men and women and children. But I do think this is a sign of how far the nation has come that we do have three out of four 
black prosecutors doing this. This would have been impossible, you know, even 50 years ago or so. And the fact that it's happening right now and that there's a very good chance that uh, some of these charges will come to fruition and that people will be going to jail, including possibly the former president. I find it very compelling. I think it's the way that things were meant to work based on our Constitution. I mean, I don't even know that it would have happened 20 years ago. Do I think you you're think? right. I think you're right. I mean, it's it's mind it's mind blowing to watch. It's um... okay. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. But so we're talking about the real life heroines of um, of these resistances, and uh, I'm curious to hear. You spoke a little bit about The Handmaid's Tale earlier. I wonder what your favorite examples in literature. I can think of so many examples in literature. You know, Setha from Beloved comes to mind. Maya Angelou from her multiple memoirs. Um, a favorite of mine is Cora from Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. There are tons and tons more. Who are your favorite characters in that vein? And, and what do they maybe tell us about Fonnie Willis? Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them. I mean, you mentioned some of my favorites already. I mean, I'll just start off by saying basically every every woman in every Toni Morrison book is a great example of that. You know, I, I just went back to read Paradise. And I mean, there are probably 12 women in that book who are such uh, striking leaders within that community um, of Ruby. Um, of course, Maya Angelou, I, in high school, I think I read all four of her autobiographies. I mean, who, you know, who writes four autobiographies? She does because she had a very big story to tell. And I found it very compelling to read that. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, with their eyes are watching God. Um, I mean, even Ernest Gaines, who was a fellow Louisiana native, um, uh, such an important writer to me because he had a story in his uh, short story collection um, where there's a mother character who is, you know, trying her best to protect her young son against the racism in the rural South. And um, reading that story as like a 12 year old, it really changed my life. And, and again, there's these mother figures, there's these auntie figures, there's these sister figures who I see in real life and I see them in fiction. And that makes me really inspired to see this work on the page. I just want to say that I'm when I say three out of four prosecutors, I'm including Letitia James, who's her, she has a civil suit. It's not exactly the same case as what Fawny Willis is doing, but uh, I include her. Well, in you that, have to hit the them from all and, sides. And then Al, I was about to yeah. say, get them, get them from everywhere. Alvin Bragg's the other prosecutor <laughs> we're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, isn't that what the MAGA movement is about? Is that, in fact, there are people like Fawny Willis in positions of power? And there are people in the country who do not like that and do not want that to happen. Yeah, you know, I think in politics, I mean, I'm somebody who has made it the point to study history extensively, even, you know, outside of America, going back to ancient Greece, going back to Africa, going back thousands of years. And you sort of see the same stories being repeated over and over again. You know, I don't want to call everybody who supports MAGA monsters. That's for y'all to say if you want to. But I will say that if they had their choice, you know, they would want people who look just like them. For the most part, they are, you know, white folks. And you'd have a Supreme Court that was homogenous. You would have uh, senators and representatives who were homogenous. You'd have people in the presidency and in the cabinet who were homogenous. And they'd be okay with that because that's the history of America. To a certain extent, when you say conservatism is talking about that, and they will often make arguments that, you know, going against that sort of old standard is artificial and against the American way because it requires... Uh, affirmative action and all these other things to make it to make it happen. But of course, you know, in the democracy, we should be represented by people that, that look like the entire country. We are 380 million people and we're the most diverse country on earth. And therefore, we should have people 
uh, from all walks of our American society to participate in our politics and in our government. That's what this case is about. I mean, a, a majority of people, voters of color and white voters who want a government like that, won the election. <laughs> and, and the president decided that that was not the former president, Trump, decided that that had to be changed illegally, in my personal view. Uh, obviously, he's innocent until proven guilty, but I think it's clear to me that he is guilty. And and that's the reason why, because he can't accept democracy, really. I mean, we're in a, we're in a state where it feels to me like there's a group of people in the country who won't accept the idea of democracy because it's not turning out the way that they want it to be. But so this is interesting. I was reading about, I was like, oh, I wonder what's been written about Stacey Abrams and um, Fonnie Willis. And so I was reading about this last night. And so there are some Republican critics who are like, well, if Trump is going to be prosecuted in this way, why can't Stacey Abrams be prosecuted? So like, this is interesting because it's not actually a crime to refuse to concede or even to like deny the truth of the election. It is a crime to like try to change the results. Right. And so this is like the this is the the lousy distinction. Um, I don't know how one finds a jury of his peers. Um, (laughs) I do wonder what that looks like. I have no idea. But like, it, you know, his his crime and, and I'm going to go ahead and just say this is not my personal opinion it is the opinion of this specific podcast, maybe not our guest, but like our podcast stance is that this guy's this guy's he's guilty. Um, and we don't really feel like there's a lot of ambiguity there. And so I don't know, like I, I just the way that people immediately try to turn the rhetoric to sort of be like, well, other people have done things like this. No, he's <laughs> a distinctive criminal. He is a distinct- well, I think we should ask Maurice what he thinks of the case as a lawyer. <laughs> I want to know because you practice. I mean, you practice law for I mean, 15 Rico years. Rico cases are complicated. They're not that easy. Yes, I have been a lawyer now for uh, it's going to be 20 years next month, I think is correct. Uh, I got my license in October of 2003. And, you know, look, I, I think by the letter of the law, um, the people involved in, in this uh, January 6th conspiracy, they're guilty. But I think also when you add politics to the mix, that changes everything. I mean, think about jury nullification, for example. The idea that, you know, in, in, in the South for the longest time, you would have somebody who would murder somebody by lynching. And then you'd have an actual trial. And then you'd have all the evidence presented. And even sometimes the people who had committed the act would say, yeah, we did it. And then the jury would say, yeah, but we're not going to, we're not sending you guys to jail. You, know, you, you were working on our behalf. And so I think in this case, you know, on the one hand, we have people who are saying, let's uphold the law as it is. And then the other half of the country is saying, yes, but not against this person because he's our guy. And so it makes it complicated like that. And, you know, I, I think um, as somebody who speaks at a lot of writers conferences, you know, I've spoken at I've, I've taught and spoken at uh, Swanee in Tennessee a couple of times. And I've given a, a sort of series of presentations there over the past couple of years about how we make the mistake of thinking that a lot of our sort of uh, dubious political ancestors, like Thomas Jefferson, for example, that they were just presenting their version of events. Like if you say Thomas Jefferson, who owned hundreds of slaves and, you know, raped this lady, Sally, and had a bunch of, you know, she had a bunch of babies for him, that kind of stuff. It's not just that we present his version of events. We also erase the other side's version of events. We don't have Sally uh, Henning's version of what happened to her. We, we never will have that. You know, the man who cooked for George Washington for, I think, decades. We don't know his story. Not really. Not firsthand. And I think in the present case, these people will look, are looking at somebody like uh, Miss Willis and saying, you know, don't listen to her. You know, who, you, who, who will you believe? You know, your lying eyes are us. And that is the reason why I write these sort of speculative alternative histories. 
because you know if they want to play around and do that well you know something there's so many stories from my community that have been suppressed and altered and hidden that I can go back into the record and take what I've seen and heard and learned and make my version as a fiction writer that shows the brilliance and the resilience of these you know black women and, and men in, in the past so I just want to asterisk the thing I said before. I said 15 years. Um, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I think I was reading the PC Road for LitHub about being a lawyer, which must have come out along with your first book. And we'll link to that in our show notes um, so that our listeners who might not be as familiar with your legal background can dive a little bit further into that. Don't take five years off his legal career. <laughs> he worked hard for those years. Well, I wonder if... Um, so like we're kind of tossing around the word Rico, like everyone knows what it is. And and I should say, like uh, before we were when we were prepping this episode, I was like, Whitney, if, if America knew what Rico was before this, it's probably because of the soap opera General Hospital, which uses it for major storylines. And he was like, I've never seen General Hospital. I'm a literary <laughs> fiction writer. Um, I did. Anyway. I said it just that way. <laughs> so um, for our listeners who might not know what Rico is, can you can you gloss that for us? Oh, sure thing. So Rico uh was a well it is a legal device that was created during the prohibition era you had a lot of these gangsters up in chicago new york and other places who were uh running guns running alcohol running drugs and they were very crafty people you know al capone for example you just couldn't catch them in the act or they would you know bribe police officers you know bribe uh da's uh threaten witnesses that sort of thing and so when some of the government realized that they couldn't get them on say murder charges, for example, or on the charges of transporting alcohol illegally, for example, they decided to get them on taxes. And so they made this RICO law, which was designed to say, you know what, maybe we didn't see you shoot somebody, maybe we didn't like get the truck full of the alcohol, but we see that you have been working with these other people in conjunction to commit crimes. And so basically RICO is a sort of conspiracy to commit crimes act and it's been very effective over the past um, I think what almost 90 years or so now if not longer at catching some of the most notorious and hard to catch criminals um, in the act and we're seeing it used in these cases. And doesn't Georgia have a slightly easier like standard for proving for for using RICO like their law is a little easier to apply than the federal RICO statutes? Well I'm not an expert in the Georgia law but what typically happens is that Federal cases tend to be a bit more stringent just because those laws are crafted by Congress and oftentimes those laws are crafted by conservatives who want to make it a little more difficult to get white collar crimes and, you know, people who are accused of like, you know, fraud and those kind of things arrested versus, you know, drug crimes where it's really easy to get people under, under federal laws, at least traditionally. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So I think one of my favorite fictionalizations of this this method of catching people is maybe um, the un the Untouchables. So you just watched a hell of a lot of Rico TV, <laughs> I guess. You haven't seen the Untouchables, anyway. Um, Great film. Very, it's kind of it's kind of a cheesy movie. No, I've seen it. But um, but yeah, you know they do get out. It's a fictionalization of getting Al Capone on taxes, anyway. So. Um, and of course, like this is not exactly Fonnie Willis's first rodeo or first Rico case. Um, she had that case against the Atlanta public school teachers, which Whitney, I think, mentioned earlier. There's a recent New York Times profile of Fonnie Willis, and, and this quote comes from that when Shawnee Robinson, one of the teachers in this case, um, said this about Fonnie Willis. This is what I've come across, especially dealing with the media, especially dealing with the liberal media. Fonnie is a black woman, a Democrat, who is going after Trump, and people just want to turn a blind eye. 
And I'm like, she's a black woman who is trying to send other black women who have children to prison. So this is, you know, we've been talking about this whole range of women who have offered up different kinds of organized different kinds of resistance, offered up different kinds of resistance. And this seems like one thing that separates Willis from at least the majority of literary characters we've spoken about, um, or also even historical figures like Ida B. Wells, Sojourner Truth, Angela Davis. Um, She's an insider and she represents the institutional power. So how does that change how she's perceived? You know, it definitely does change things because, you know, again, so often throughout American history, uh, black women have been disenfranchised. So we haven't had a black woman president, for example. You know, we haven't had a, a black woman attorney general. Um, and so I, I think what's happening in this case, now obviously the lady in, in that piece, you know, she has her own cross to bear because she's involved in the case. So I understand her point of view. And I think she's making an interesting point. I do think that for somebody like Ms. Willis, I mean, if you decide to be a prosecutor, part of your job is putting folks in jail. Now you get to decide on what to focus your efforts. You know, do you want to go after uh, you know, teachers in your school system versus, say, going after, you know, white-collar criminals who are stealing money from the community and that sort of thing. Um, that's part of the answer. Um, I do think that, you know, because most of those characters in, you know, Hurston books or Morrison books or, you know, Maya Angelou, you know, because they, they're not in positions of power, they can't cause that kind of damage. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I can't speak for Ms. Willis. I think that she's probably thought this through. And she probably believes that it behooves the community to make sure that these, you know, teachers are, are not um, shirking their duty to actually teach students and, uh, you know, break the law by uh, just making up test results and that sort of thing. But of course, you know, that's for the, the judge and jury to figure out what the actual facts are and what the outcome should be. It's one of the complications of attaining power is that it's you don't get to. You can't be pure anymore, really. I mean, someone's always going to be mad at you if you're in charge of things and you're going to have to make controversial decisions. And I think that's what's interesting about reading about her. You know, she's not some sort of imaginary saint. She is a politician who has to get elected and a prosecutor also. You know, I mean, she had a complicated role in the Rayshard Brooks case, which is a young black man who was shot by a white police officer. That happened during her, when she wasn't in charge. It was Howard, the previous DA. He ended up charging the officers and then she recused herself saying that she'd been too much involved in the case. She really didn't end up taking a stance on it, you know, um, and I you can look at political motive there. I mean, I just I think she's a complicated and interesting person. And I think you're going to you know, that is a, is a development for this tradition, right, where you're going to have women in power who are making decisions that not everyone in their own community is going to agree with. Yeah, that's right. And in that case was such a difficult case because. I, I mean, from my understanding, you know, reading up on uh, her decisions is that, you know, she basically felt like it'd be inappropriate for somebody like her who saw all these inner workings that her boss was doing in the case to sort of take it over and then prosecute. But of course, then she tries to send it up to the state level and have them prosec- prosecute those two officers. Um, but, you know, in a state that is very conservative, that is going to, um, you know, support police officers, the chance of them taking it up and prosecuting those those two officers where there's qualified immunity was very, very, very small. And I do wonder, you know, what her real opinion is about it, because, you know, you can say it was a complicated night where bad things happened, but she should have an opinion about what happened. And I think it's clear to most of us that, you know, there's over-policing in black communities and that leads to people being brutalized by the police who otherwise would not be if they were white. And I think it's pretty clear in a case like that. Maurice, I have one last question for you because you are 
an expert. And um, I'm really curious about this because it seems like one of the things that your answers sound like, and please tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you, is that you believe in the judicial system and that you think it's operating like in a way that you can work in. And I mean, you're, you are two decades a lawyer and, um, you know, these days you're teaching creative writing, but I mean, this is one of the things, right, that her job, her job requires, not only does she represent institutional power, but to function, I don't know, like, I mean, I work in an institution, right? And, and it's a, it's a messy business to be someone who is from a marginalized community who then, you know, for example, teaches creative writing in a primarily white institution. To what extent is my belief in the system required? And I'm curious to what extent you believe in our judicial system in its current iteration, where we have all of these Trump appointed judges, like arguably erosion of judicial process. Um, And like, you know, now you're starting to run into judges who maybe have lifetime appointments and were installed under Trump. What do you do? What is the future of our judicial system? Well, I think there's definitely an imbalance with all of these conservative judges who've been appointed because, you know, if somebody in law school, I remember my professors telling us that the idea of being a judge was to be neutral, as neutral as possible. And yet you have people who are just like, you know, they have their MAGA bona fides and they're making it the point to say that they're going to always call balls and strikes in one direction versus the other, which is a terrible thing. On the other hand, I would not have become a lawyer if I didn't believe in something that the system has done. And, you know, so many of the ancestors, you know, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, and many others throughout history, they were fighting to make the system better. And I know, again, as a student of history, what happens when it totally breaks down, sometimes it's necessary to start something new and fresh. Um, But, you know, look, ancient Rome, the um, republic became an empire when the senators in charge decided they didn't believe in the system anymore. Therefore, you had this emperor, this this, uh, dictator take over. It happened in Britain at some point. It's happened all. Of, it happened even like with, with uh, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, there was an international order, you know, that had been in place for seventy something years, and then one guy says, "I don't believe in that anymore." And so you have hundreds of thousands of people just dying left and right, and the possibility of nuclear war. So I think it's important for us to take this thing we've made in America that you know the founding fathers made, and that so many of our people have fought for over the years to make it the best version of itself, because we do have a good foundation, I think. But at the same time. It's not just the law, as I said earlier. It's about politics as well. And until we can fix our politics, we can't really fix our laws. Maurice, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners, keep an eye out for The American Daughters, which will be out. What is what? Do you have the month for us? February 27, 2024. There you go. And please check out the rest of uh, Maurice's wonderful work. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>